Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi there, and welcome to this week's episode of Stock Club, coming to you from the top floor of my Wall Street HQ here in Dublin, Ireland. I'm James, and with me this week is my Wall Street co-founder and chief investor, Emmett Savage, our head analyst, Rory Caron, and a special guest today, our summer intern, Emily Holman, all the way from California. Before we start today's episode, go ahead and hit that subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening to us on to make sure you don't miss out on future episodes. Today, we're going to talk about Netflix losing The Office and Friends, why Slack shouldn't fear Microsoft Teams, and our 10-year predictions for three public companies. So, Emily, welcome to the Stock Club podcast. Thank you. Excited to be here. I am. All the way from California. I've come a long way just for this, actually. How are you finding Ireland so far? I love it. It's so nice. How are you finding my Wall Street? More important question. (laughs) It's great. We didn't pair to say that. (laughs) So let's kick off today and look at some um, recent news from the past few weeks. And I want to start off first with Netflix. So um, they reported their earnings about two weeks ago, a week ago maybe. Um, And the big news was that they had a big miss on subscribers. So they had about 2.7 million subs in the quarter, which was much lower than the 5 million that they'd guided for. Um, more specifically, they actually lost subscribers in the US. They lost 126,000 subs in the US where they'd expected to add over 300,000. And they they seem to blame this miss for the, the content slate they had for that quarter. So they blame that for the weaker subscriber vote. But Rory, is this a worrying sign for Netflix? Uh, well, like looking through the past couple of years, it has been in Q2 usually when the subscribers do seem to miss, and I'm not entirely sure what drives that. Um, I mean, they had very strong subscriber numbers for Q1, so there is there is a sense that maybe, you know, the people were, were buying it in preparation for new releases that were coming out that didn't kind of follow through in Q2. Yeah. Um, but I think one of the bigger stories, and it seems like it was a while ago now, but we might have, uh, I think we recorded the last podcast a bit early and missed it, but... Um, the story going around that Friends, or it's not a story, it's confirmed, that Friends and The Office are both being taken off the platform uh, in the next couple of years. Um, the uh, Friends is moving to HBO Max, which is owned by Time Warner. Yep. Uh, and The Office is moving to NBC Universal, which is owned by Comcast. Had Netflix not just paid an incredible amount of money to keep Friends? Yeah, they paid it. They paid about eighty million to keep it for this year that we okay. that we're, we're, we're in at the moment, and it's going to be removed in the next year. Uh, and so this is this has basically been the big talk about Netflix prior to the um, the release this week. Uh, particularly this idea that Friends and The Office were their two most popular shows and The Office was has been their number one show for quite a while. It's been heralded in the media as the death of Netflix. But I think there's a couple of... <laughs> bit of an overstatement. Yeah, I think so. So there's also a couple of other things that people I don't think understand, which is that it's not as if the owners, let's say the owners of Friends and The Office, have decided just to remove them from Netflix yeah. uh, in order to feed their own streaming services. Um, what I think you need to, what people need to remember first is that there's kind of really two types of content on streaming channels. There's uh, new shows that get released uh, that basically drive subscribers yeah. uh, into the into the service, and then there's kind of this kind of filler content that people have probably seen before, 
Um, it's there for when they don't really know what to watch. It's reruns of old shows and it's just easy for them to flick on, have on in the background rather, yeah. than, rather than what really drives subscriptions to a service, like the things like kind of Stranger Things, uh, Making a Murderer, uh, Mindhunter, which I'm very much looking forward to the second season of. Mm. Uh, so it's it's kind of in between those new releases coming out, the filler kind of keeps people subscribed. Yeah. And we're talking at Netflix, obviously they are trying to just build subscriber growth. So they both want to be feeding new subscribers in and retaining them. So obviously there's kind of balancing there. And I suppose you could argue Friends, and some people do argue that Friends was a kind of weird hybrid of both because there was this younger generation uh, who had never seen Friends. Yeah, really that, was, liked it. that was really unsettling, kind of seeing people that I kind of thought were the same generation as me who yeah. have never seen Friends. Emily, have you seen Friends? I have not. You've well, never seen a single episode of Friends? No, actually yeah. my younger sister started watching it about two weeks ago. She loves it. And I'm binge-watching it again with my ten year, my sorry, my 13-year-old son. Uh, we're kind of 105 episodes into like a 230 or 40 episode odyssey. And I have to say it is an extremely funny show. Yeah, it's just crazy to think that it's it's brand new to people. Yeah, which is just the sign <laughs> of our age. Time is a cruel mistress. sign of our age, James. Um... So yeah, so I think there's a distinction to be made there, and maybe Friends is the is the is this is the strange one that kind of uh, saddles both. But um, really, I mean, content gets less valuable as as time goes on. Yeah. Um. So that brings me up to my second important point, which is yeah, this idea that the the owners of Friends and the owners of Netflix are just removing them from Netflix and just putting them on their own streaming channels. That's absolutely not true. Um, the owners of the content uh, have are actually selling them to their own streaming service. Okay. How does that work? <laughs> it's a good question. Uh, so even though they own the rights to Friends and they own the rights to The Office in in um, in Comcast's uh, situation, they they can't just give it away the the content yeah. for free because they don't own all of it. There's mm. a lot of people who are making money off the royalty of Friends. If you think about like original producers, the original production company, some of the actors maybe, uh, the writers. Yeah. So all these people are getting a cut of all the profits that a show like The Officer Friends makes so to take it away from a company that's paying an awful lot of money for it and just to give it to another company that's not paying anything for it would not go down very well Yeah. so in the case of The Office uh, they're moving that content from Universal TV which owns the rights to it uh, to NBC Universal and NBC Universal are paying $500 million for five years so, so the office is worth a hundred million dollars a year. Well, that's <laughs> now we're thinking about the 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 question. Like Netflix apparently paid around a hundred million dollars for its multi-year deal with the office yeah. before this deal came through, um, and so what's happening now is they are making a bet that it's worth NBC Universal's money mm. to keep the office on their streaming platform. Yeah, and one of the reasons for that is because if they just give it to their own people they're basically rejecting 500 million dollars wow. from other companies wow. uh, and with Netflix that doesn't really matter that much the price doesn't really matter because they can spread that across a really really big subscriber base Yeah. but with something like HBO Max or NBC Universal which hasn't even been launched yet and we don't know what their subscription figures are going to be like that's going to cost an awful lot more per subscriber yeah and an incredible amount of money like I know The Office is still very popular but for not new content. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the thing, and so and also you got to remember Netflix could have bid for this as well if they wanted to. Was, yeah, they, this was a fair price that you know it was offered to Hulu, it was offered to other streaming services, and it, the fair price they came up with for the content was five hundred million dollars. So Netflix clearly looked at this and said it's not worth the money, and Netflix knows 
a lot more about what's good for its subscription service than yeah. else does. So, so do we think Netflix's focus going forward, and especially when you consider as well that it's, it'll be losing its Disney content to come the end of this year, um, Netflix's focus is going to be primarily on producing its own content? Uh, I still think they're going to buy in content from other companies. Like There was a, a figure out, I think it was from Nielsen's, that 72% of streaming downtime is from non-original content on Netflix. Yeah. And Netflix dispute this and they don't give out the figures for this kind of stuff. So, I mean, they are still going to be in the in the content purchasing business mm. as well as the uh, original show producing business. I just think it's going to be funny to watch over the next couple of years if these new services that are coming out are going to be able to justify what they are going to end up spending on content because remember they they aren't getting it for free there is yeah. there is someone asking a cost. is this making is this worth the investment okay interesting i have a few netflix fast facts its current market cap is around 130 billion dollars and the value of its brand as at the last day of march 2019 was 21.2 uh, billion dollars so like there is a huge their brand equity is indisputable. When people think about streaming movies, they think Netflix or rather streaming home entertainment. And it's hard to read out a graph on a podcast, but I'm going to try. <laughs> um, so if you take the years 2013 to, through to 2018 inclusive, which is a six-year period, yeah. I'm just going to read out Netflix's annual revenue. So what fell into the cash register at a till per annum from 2013 to 2018 uh, inclusive. So in 2013, four billion, then five and a half billion, then six and a half billion, then eight and a half billion, then eleven billion, and last year was sixteen billion. And that, if you kind of look at the big picture of Netflix, is the trajectory that we are looking for in long-term mega brands. They already have a brand worth twenty-one billion. No one disputes that they own home or a good uh, a good control on home entertainment and the quarterly numbers that we heard about i think are a distraction to the bigger picture in fact a, a fun fact i just read was that the percentage of kids in netflix only households that don't know what a tv commercial is <laughs> what do you reckon what percentage of kids in netflix only households have no idea what a tv commercial is um. Well, if it's Netflix only, is it yeah. all of them? <laughs> yeah. You're close. So it's 82%. But it's amazing to think that yeah. there's a whole generation of TV, or rather screen viewers, who don't even know what a TV commercial is. And well, it's kind of going back to that Friends point. As amazing as it is that there's a whole bunch of people out there who haven't watched Friends, there's a whole bunch of people out there that don't even know what a TV advert is, <laughs> thanks to Netflix. Yeah, well, that's definitely one of the benefits of Netflix then. Uh, moving on then. So another big story from the last few weeks was um, Slack. Um, versus Microsoft Teams. I've kind of named it as, I don't know if that's a really an accurate thing. I think, Rory, you called it earlier, the Ali versus Foreman, which, yeah. <laughs> yeah. which might Go be on. a bit of an overstatement. David but versus Goliath. David versus yeah. Goliath. Yeah. So um, recently, Microsoft announced that its collaborative tool Teams, which is widely considered the biggest competitor to Slack, had more than 13 million daily active users and 19 million weekly active users. So that's higher than the 10 million daily active users Slack most recently referenced in its S1 filing before going public a few months back. Um, so does this mean Slack's in trouble already? Uh, we'll just start off with there was an interesting uh, interview that Stuart Butterfield did with, I think it was the day that the company 
um, did an IPO bus uh, direct listed yes. where he was asked uh, what's going to happen when a competitor like Google comes in and tries to copy what you do, uh, do. and um, Butterfield responded uh, well they actually have tried and the fact that you didn't know that is a, is a good sign yes. for us that's <laughs> <laughs> fair uh, so yeah but no that that, uh, that announcement by Microsoft that they have 13 million daily active users uh, beats, our, beats what Slack most recently announced 10 million um, but he was asked to respond to this at a tech conference I can't remember which one it was, it was sponsored by Fortune I think um, and he had a pretty good answer for it I, he said if it's based on bigger distribution I don't think that's really a threat yeah. um, so I mean remember Microsoft has a user base of 180 million uh, active users on Office 365 uh, which is by far the world's largest uh, office suite uh, for productivity tools and the fact that Microsoft are giving teams away for free obviously gives them a big advantage in terms of getting active users yeah. because it's just an add-on you don't pay anything for it it's there it's basically just a tutorial on how to use it and as soon as people learn how to use it they probably will start using it because yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a feature that's there so the fact that they've kind of outdone Slack on daily active users I think you do have to take with a massive pinch of salt but look they do, Microsoft do you know, have an edge there when it comes to distribution. Yeah. And um, I mean, you kind of assume as well that Microsoft probably have an edge when it comes to things like security and compliance, just because they've been in the enterprise space longer. Um, but we don't know that. But there's probably a trust element there that, yeah. that, that they do. But I think Slack has a lot of advantages as well. And I think if you consider the way Slack enters the workplace, well, how it entered our workplace, I think, in particular, is that you have a kind of maybe even one person or a small team of people who decide that they want to use this tool to talk to each other and collaborate with each other. Yeah. And if they find value in it, and we know that people do find value in it, they talk to other people in the team and then they start using it. And suddenly you've got a couple of teams within an organization, even a really big organization using it. And Slack know this. They can see this happening because they're collecting uh, workplace emails. That's a really big advantage when it comes to a sales team coming in and saying, hey guys, we have... We know your teams are using this. Yeah. Why don't we help you make this company wide? That's much easier than a kind of cold call from a salesperson yeah. in terms of getting your product in the door and you know that land and expand model that we've talked so much about with companies like Atlassian. I was just about to mention Atlassian. It's the exact same way yeah. they wangled their way into our workplace. Yeah. Um, so, so that would be like an example of disruptive innovation, you know, coming from the very bottom down, building a really simple product that people love and working your way up. And uh, Stuart Butterfield at that conference talked about, you know, Microsoft destroying IBM, um, Google taking on Microsoft in the search space mm. from a very early age and Microsoft not being able to see it coming or when they did see it coming, putting a huge amount of resources behind it and still not being able to stop it. I did think it was a bit below the belt that he he brought in being into this, probably the sore spot for Microsoft. Yeah. <laughs> like he was totally, I mean, he's right in the in the sense that like that was an example of a small disruptive company at the time. Yeah. Just owning a space, owning one thing in particular. That they had no right to compare it to Microsoft really. Well, really, yeah, when you think about the fact that they owned they owned uh, the desktop, they owned the browser at the time mm. with Internet Explorer. It's, it's, it is quite insane that a small company like Google ended up coming in and owning the space. Um, so I think we're going to find in the next kind of couple of years going to be very interesting to see which of the two companies comes out on top. I think I've never used Teams. I've talked to a couple of people who have who do use it and I've actually talked to a couple of people who've used both. Yeah. Uh, and the what seems to be the general vibe is that if you're using a total suite of Microsoft products, then Teams has advantages because it's the sharing functionality of, of what, you're, what you're doing. But as a chat application, Slack just wins hands down. Yeah. It totally beats them. Um, 
So for office, companies that are not using Microsoft Office, Slack seems like a better choice. And I think there's going to be an awful lot of like good integrations that companies can use like outside Office, like between, yeah. between teams and different organizations. So I think Slack probably has an advantage there as well. So yeah, it's uh, it's going to be an interesting battle. Yeah, and it, it seems like maybe not a winner-takes-all one. Oh no, I don't think it will be a winner-takes-all, no. but we'll see how it goes. In 2016, allegedly, Bill Gates and Satya Nadella met for a chat and, and they were deciding, should we buy Slack? And they, uh, as the rumour on the digital street goes, they were looking to pay $8 billion, I think, mm. for, for the business. And, and um, they decided to go it alone. And the amazing thing ab- about this story is that they decided we'll build it ourselves. In November of the same year, Teams made its launch official and in that short space of time, we're now talking about them as the the B player to slackers. Yeah. Like, indeed, the, the challenger to the incumbent. Cool. I know, and I think that's probably why you're going to hear um, Microsoft shouting every time that they have yeah. a, a big <laughs> yeah. win because, you know, I think a lot of people there was, you know, People know that they were looking at Slack and didn't didn't go with them. They know yeah. that they were looking at Zoom, and didn't go with them. So or didn't try to acquire them. And so any time that they get any sort of win, I wouldn't be surprised to hear big announcements from Microsoft because yeah. it's uh, just proves their point. I suppose. Yeah, they have to justify their decision a little bit. Uh, let's move on then to the company we never talked about. So Rory, you're going to take it this week. And when you mentioned this company to me I was actually really surprised that we haven't talked about it at all because it's a very kind of brand centric company it's quite well known yeah it is and I'm going to I'm going to do this quickly because it feels like I've been talking forever uh, <laughs> but uh, this is one of my favourite companies um, it's similar to another company that we talk, to, talk about an awful lot and that company is Shopify uh, but this is kind of another company kind of in that space and that's Wix which is an Israeli company it helps build it helps small businesses build and operate websites uh, funnily enough the founders of Wix initially wanted to start a totally different business yeah. uh, but when they went to build a website they realised they, there were no tools available for people who didn't code so that saw, they saw an opportunity there shifted attention um, and that's pretty. That's very similar to what happened with Shopify and what happened with Slack. Actually. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so they built a tool that allowed people with basically no coding skills whatsoever to build a very simple, easy to use website. Um, and obviously, this is really important these days. You know, having a website is really the first thing you need as a business if you're starting out. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so they have a freemium model, which also allows, which allows people to use kind of drag and drop features to build a website. Uh, and this is like really good. This is really important for new entrepreneurs because it's an easy and effective way to kind of test a concept and to, to, to gauge demand for a product that they may not even have launched yet. Uh, then once once they're set up, they can pay for extra services. You know, you can get rid of adverts. You can add shopping carts. Uh, there's like in-depth traffic analysis. And they even have their own app store where they, they actually take a cut. There. So they're linking users with developers and taking a little cut there. Um, about an hour ago, they reported their second quarter. Yep. Uh, How did since, it go? Uh, well, on first look, it's, they did very well. They beat on uh, most estimates. They announced to have more than 150 million registered users now, and 4.5 million of them are paying a subscription. And they keep junking that conversion rate as well. Every yeah. quarter, it seems like more and more people are converting uh, from registered to, to paid. Um, funny enough, the stock always seems to sell off a bit after an earnings report, despite the fact that they usually beat consensus estimates. And I think that kind of demonstrates uh, the the feeling of, or this kind of feeling that people really expect a lot from this company. Yeah. 
They're um, quite a small company still, too. They're just over seven billion, I think. Yeah, just over mm. seven billion, and you know, obviously in a very competitive landscape. But what I really like about this company is their leadership. You know, they have unwavering dedication to building this company for the long term. Uh, they're very clear on their strategies as how they're going to do that, how they gain and retain customers. It's all driven by product, which they continue to heavily invest in. And they clearly know their industry and, and, and position themselves in it very well. So it's been a really big winner for us since we added. I think it's about 180%. I'm a shareholder. It's been a big winner for me as yeah. well. So, yeah, that's Wix. We use them in my Wall Street as well. <laughs> we seem to just talk about companies we use. <laughs> Where do we use them? We, we've we created a few um, web pages through ah. them. It's very, it's like, I can use it. So I think that's the, that's the barometer for how easy it is. Niall Barry, my wow. favourite barometer, also uses them. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, moving on, um, there's loads of new stuff in the My Wall Street app at the moment, including July's Stock of the Month selection, a new stock edition, and a brand new expert opinion piece written by Rory that outlines some of the ways that our analyst team here at My Wall Street finds new stocks to research. You can check out all of that in the My Wall Street app right now. But Emmett, you just wanted to follow up on something you mentioned in the last podcast. Yeah, thanks, James. I'd just like to remind our listeners that we are running an inaugural premium seminar in Dublin and New York this September and November, respectively, which we're going to name in person. Uh, So it's a small, intimate event where I'll explain how I have found and how I find outstanding stocks to buy and hold for the long term. And unlike my Wall Street app, it's not 10 bucks. However, I do believe it will be every bit as special and have some very nice surprises for attendees. Uh, If you'd like detail, just email seminars at mywallstreet.com and we'll send you a link to the registration page when it's finalised, which will unveil some of the detail of that surprise I mentioned. Sounds good. So to register your interest, it's seminars at my Wall Street. That's the one. Perfect. I'll include that in the show notes. Moving on quickly then. So this is Jargon Busters. So this is where we bust some common questions and jargon some of our listeners have encountered in the stock market. The first question relates to price to earnings and price to sales ratios. So what's the difference between them and when should you use these measures? One of you. Sorry. That was was me. It's very hot in this office. It is. Yeah, yeah. Dublin is unseasonably Uh, warm at the moment. Sorry. Price to earnings and price to sales. Sales, Yeah. What's the Uh, difference and when should you use them? Well, the the name kind of says it all. Uh, The price to earnings is you're comparing the price of the company, the overall valuation of the company to the earnings that it's that it's generating. And price to sales is you're judging the value of a company based on the revenue it's generating. So for example, if a company's generating ten billion in revenue and it's valued at a hundred billion, it's got a price to sales of ten. Yeah. If it's generating earnings, bottom line earnings of one billion, it's got a price to earnings of a hundred. Okay. So um that's a quick uh yeah. ex- explanation of what they are. Um then when to use them. Was that the second Yeah, one? yeah, yeah. Uh, so when to use them is a lot of the time you don't really have a choice, particularly with kind of small tech companies that are in high growth mode. They don't have earnings. Yeah. So um, trying so to you use can't it, use it price earnings. Yeah. And, and, and a lot of the time, even if they do have earnings, it's kind of a useless metric because if they're in hyper growth mode, their earnings today very, matter very little. It's the revenue growth that you're looking for. Okay. And, and then you're trying to see if they'll have operational leverage further down the line to turn that revenue into earnings. So okay. it, that's a, it's a much trickier question. You have to look way further out for a high growth company for price to earnings to be relevant at all. Yeah. Um, price to sales, on the other hand, it's again, it's not a, it's not the best metric to judge a company, but for companies in high growth, it's probably a bit more um, useful because you can check companies in the same the same sector and see how they're compared based on how much sales okay. they're generating. Because you'd hope 
the companies have sales, if, even if they don't have earnings. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of an important thing. Cool. Uh, next question we had is about stop-loss orders. So what are they, Emmett, and when would you use a stop-loss order? Sure. Uh, a stop-loss order becomes a market order when a stock sells at or below a specified stop price. So effectively, it's a mechanism offered to you by generally your online broker. Yeah. So, and it's most often used as a protection against a serious drop in the price of, of a stock you own. So let's say you own shares in Uber and it's trading at 46 bucks. Uh, you can go in and place a stop loss order with your broker, for example, 41 bucks or like 10% below the current price. And that means that if Uber stock falls to 41 bucks or below, your order becomes market order. In other words, it becomes active. So you'll get something like 41 bucks, maybe yeah. a few pennies above or below, but it's the activation price. Uh, what I would say, though, is I spent a full year in my early 20s exploring day trading, swing trading, momentum trading, applying all the math I'd learned in prior years and every other version of trading. Um, and I sat, it was the early days of the internet and I felt I had the resources at hand to have an edge. And um, from, and in my opinion, and from research and real life experience, stop loss orders are the surest way to destroy an investing strategy. Okay. So not to confuse with a trading strategy. And traders are are those people who generally will close the week with no stocks. They might be day traders or swing yep. traders, momentum traders, but they'll generally go to bed on Friday night and they don't own shares. Yeah. As a broad rule. So very actively um, buying and selling. Exactly. Yep. An investor. We are investors. We're going the long haul and Stocks you buy, uh, we believe in their strategy. We believe in their story. We look at their management. And and in any week, we three and the rest of the team downstairs, we see stocks from our, from our app fall 10%, rise 10%. It happens. Mm. And if you put in stop-loss orders on the positions in your folio, you're introducing a risk, yeah. which might be right for you, but I don't believe it's a good thing. Okay, that's just a personal opinion. Yeah, there's a thousand and one counter arguments to that. Um, like for example, if you've decided I want to sell it no matter what, it might be perfect. And there's a thing called a trailing stop, which yeah. means that as long as the stop the stock is moving up, your sell price moves up as well. Okay. So you can say, for example, if the stock drops ten percent, sell, but move that floor upwards if the stock As is going stock up. And so yeah. trailing stop is, I guess, a smarter tool to use if you've decided you want out. Hmm. Um, but in my investing life, uh, for a whole bunch of purposes, market orders are what I've used. Okay. And, um, and, and it allows you to just stay in, in control of what you're doing because there's virtually no um, instance that I have a, a personally experienced where in the market your orders and executed as your fingers coming up off the mouse it's very fast you know yeah. and they, you know, if you're moving big amounts of money in small micro cap stocks different rules apply but generally market orders are good uh, just a question as well let's say you have like a 10% a stop yeah. and something mad black swan event and the stock yeah. drops 50% yeah you'll only get the sale of 50% you bet it's like a, a, absolutely so the, the broker as, as that falling stock passes your trigger price of 10% below it opens up your shares for sale to the market and it might not fulfill 
your order until it's hit the 50% down floor. You're absolutely right, okay. Rory. You're, you've lost a lot of control. And, you know, they're, they're, they're tools designed with good purpose in mind. You know, they, they certainly, in theory, allow you to design a folio that does things while you're away on holiday. Yeah, but those events, Roy, you're absolutely right, and I saw it. I lived it in in around March two thousand dot com bubble. I, it's another day's talk, but I I lost everything. Yeah. I lost my shirt. I'd made a, a small fortune for a young man, and I vaporized a whole lot. And I can tell you, after I picked myself back up again, you learn a lot of real life lessons, and and the very one that you just mentioned there was was one of the big ones. And the last question we have comes from Ian in Canada, and he's asking, are there any public companies that look like front runners in dealing with climate change? So anything from green energy to agriculture, disaster prevention, any companies that are tackling that? The challenge, I guess, in answering this question is every business ultimately needs to point the nose of their ship at commercial success. Yeah. And they might spend years building an unprofitable customer base with a view of ultimately commercializing it. But that's the plan. And so we as investors are primarily want a return on capital. Um, so there's a risk that a business that has their primary purpose of dealing with climate change might not be a great investment. And, and there's a few proof points behind that. And, and I believe me, I wish I wish that was not the case because we were having an office debate yesterday, climate change is very close to all our hearts and I would love to say that by buying a business that has climate change as a top three priority it will outperform the market Yeah, I don't believe that to be the case and I guess broad energy you know our clean energy ETFs are yeah. probably a starting point for someone who wants to bring investing and environmental consciousness together yeah now there's two. Um, there's the well, sorry. There's two that I, I looked into in, to prepare for answering this question. One is the PowerShares uh, Wilder Hill Clean Energy Portfolio, and it hasn't done a whole lot in five years. And it's a fund based on the Wilder Hill Clean Energy Index that selects companies focused on greener and renewable energy sources and technology that facilitates a cleaner world. But it's been a pretty unimpressive five-year performance in a five-year that was magnificent. So in other words, had you bought that ETF five years, you'd actually be down today. Another is the iShares S&P Global Clean Energy Index Fund. My favorite thing about it is their ticker symbol, which is iClean, um, (laughs) I-C-L-N. But anyway, it's it's a fund that allocates its holdings to alternative energy like solar and wind. So to, yeah, so I don't know if I'm answering the question well, Every company, if you dig, will say that a cleaner world is part of their agenda. Yeah. But if you want to find a great investment because it's their agenda, well, I'm not so sure. I, I haven't said the T word one by Elon Musk, but there is, <laughs> there is one there. Just on the, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, but Beyond Meat's a very environmentally friendly company. Yeah, if that's you, a good point. Yeah. If you've seen, uh, there's a film on Netflix called Cowspiracy. Yeah. Um, that points to the real environmental destruction that eating meat causes and Beyond Meat could be one of the greenest energy stocks there is really. Yeah, so there's a, there's a few proxy ways kind of yeah. into it, yeah. And there's a hot debate raging in Ireland right now today as report on the news about how we still haven't hit our quota to reduce the number of heads of livestock and how truly damaging it is. So yeah. it, is, it is a big thing for sure. Big, big topic. Mm-hmm. Cool, so that was Jargon Busters. So quickly I want to move on to Elevator Pitch then. So this is where I give you a topic and you give me a 30 second pitch 
on said topic. Um, so for this week pitch, I asked you guys to pick a company, any company. I sound like a magician uh, and predict <laughs> where it's going to be in ten years' time. So you're you're kind of giving me a a ten year crystal ball and where you think your company's going to be. Um, Emily, we asked you to do it too. No pressure on the intern. Ooh, do you want to go first person. or last? Um, I'll go last. Okay. I want to hear. Emmett, do you want to go? Okay, sure. So 10 years hence is a long way away from today from predictive point of view. So mathematically, my odds of calling it right are improved by picking a company I don't know very well in an industry I avoid. <laughs> or at least in 10 years, I can wave off any inaccuracy by saying ignorance was my ally. So I'm going to go with Eli Lilly, which is... A business we have, I don't think we've ever discussed it, have we, Rory? No. The $105 billion pharma giant, it makes pills and it makes people get better from ailments. But they, I'm going to predict that in 10 years from now, Eli has discovered or bought the medical golden grail, which is the cure to Alzheimer's. Um, they're searching for it as we speak. And if they don't succeed, someone will. And I think they'll by that that company. So there are 5.4 million Alzheimer's patients in the United States and I think Eli Lilly will be selling cure to that in 10 years. Okay, that's a, that's a big, bold prediction. <laughs> uh, Rory, your 10-year prediction. Yeah, so on the same, well, 10 years is a long time, but also with something I think I do know a bit better, uh, which is I think Slack will become the operating system for how people work. It'll be the way that people communicate throughout joint organisations and between organisations and it'll essentially be the way we organise our working lives. Okay, so you're not worried about Microsoft? <laughs> like I said, it's going to be an interesting few years. Yeah. <laughs> and I think I'm saying my local fish restaurant takes order, or shows their, their menu uh, and you can take orders via Slack. So there's really? a Slack channel for my local restaurant. Yeah, fish place. <laughs> Sold. Right, Emily, no pressure. Okay, uh, the company I chose was Etsy. Etsy, yep. Uh, they just bought Reverb, which is like a music reselling site for, I think, $275 million. And they've done that before where the other like reselling sites are where you're buying directly from someone yeah. and you're buying vintage items. Um, they've done it before and they've done it successfully. Um, okay. And I think they're going to keep doing it. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to go with in 10 years' time, they're going to have surpassed eBay as kind of the resellers of the world. Okay. That's that is a great, that's that a good one. Yeah. And there's a couple of investors I admire greatly who are big fans of Etsy. So yeah. I, I, you're from a good start anyway. Absolutely. Nice. Yeah. That wins my vote, I think. Thank you. <laughs> no voice. I won't quit yet. <laughs> so that's about it from this week's Stock Club. Don't forget, there's loads of great new stuff in the My Wall Street app at the moment. And if there's anything you want us to discuss or explain on the next episode, make sure to get in touch with us on Twitter at My Wall Street or email us at pod at mywallstreet.com. That's P-O-D at mywallstreet.com. Please don't forget to subscribe to Stock Club too. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review for us on iTunes or whatever platform you listen to us on. From all of us here, we'll talk to you in two weeks. Happy investing. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.